anybody who thinks that romanticism is dead uh, just hasn't looked very deeply into our contemporary culture. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we're talking a lot about romanticism the last several weeks, and there's still a little bit more to talk about. Listeners need to know this is all based on your essay on romanticism, which we are linking to on every episode of this series of podcasts. The next topic was uh, individualism in that essay, and you have quite a bit to say about it in the essay, but I think we have even more to say about how it fits in with our contemporary culture and our contemporary politics. Yes. Can we just start there? I think Americans tend to think that uh, people being individuals, finding your own meaning to life, finding your own path, finding your own life partner, finding your occupation, all of that is natural, sort of organic. It's what makes us human. Um, but I think that's very far from being true. If you look back at cultures in the past or around the world at many other cultures, fitting in taking your assigned place, living up to expectations of parents and relatives and villagers and so on was much more emphasized than it is in modern American culture. Um, if you were a medieval miller's son, you were almost certainly going to become the village miller after him. If you were the daughter of a peasant, you were almost certainly going to marry a peasant. Now, people uh, sometimes made fantasies about escaping these class-bound ties in the Middle Ages by writing romances in which uh, some peasant uh, would marry a noble, but those were almost always couched in terms of the peasant person actually not being a peasant, really having been abandoned as a child, like Tristan, mm -hmm. who grows up on a farm and turns out to be the relative of the king whose wife he has an affair with. There are, you know, a maiden who is actually been locked up out in the wilderness to protect her, but uh, she looks like a poor girl, but she's actually a princess and so on. So they really couldn't get away from these class limitations in their thinking about relationships in this way. Um, individualism as an ideal uh, is relatively recent. Now, there have always been individualists. You know, there were people who stood against uh, what everybody else was thinking, Socrates being a famous example and one that was often cited and imitated by people advocating individualism. And uh, Alexander the Great being another classic example of somebody who just tried to reshape the world, uh, not that successfully conquered a lot of the world and then lost it mm -hmm. as it went back to its old patterns, leaving behind a number of cities named Alexandria and Iskandar and other variations on his name. But um, Napoleon is the one who really stimulates the romantic imagination. Um, this guy who goes from obscure life in Corsica to become uh, first the defender of the French Revolution and then turns it on its head to become uh, a dictatorial emperor who founds a new quasi-royal line and 
tries to reshape Europe into one large culture and is very interested in using propaganda through the arts of uh, himself as a hero and so on. He's kind of uh, sort of a pre-echo of Hitler in a way. Um, you start to get in literature novels about people who are inspired by the image of Napoleon. Dostoevsky is a notable example who really detest Napoleon, although Dostoevsky himself was an extreme individualist, but he idealized the notion of traditionalism, um, particularly of Christian belief, which um, he had an interestingly complex relationship with. But um, he saw the Napoleonic complex leading to horrors like uh, the young student in Crime and Punishment who commits murder essentially so he can prove that he is free and individual and not bound by the constraints of society and morality and so on. So there's a great debate that takes place during the Romantic period about how individualistic should you be. The other great figure for influencing this is Byron, of course, and Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which was hugely popular, that combines this love for the exotic, the idea of the travel and the foreign, the solitude and all of that. Uh, I mentioned before Rousseau, whose last book was called uh, The Reveries of a Solitary Walker. Um, Walker isn't very good at promeneur in French. <laughs> Les rêveries du promeneur. Literally, uh, the reveries of the idly walking person. And he depicts himself wandering around. Uh, now, Rousseau was also a self-inventor. And that's something else that's very characteristic of individualism. Um, we talked before about his celebration of love and true love and stuff. And, and people who have studied him intensely know that uh, Rousseau himself, his, his love mate was uh, an illiterate washing woman uh, that he lived with and refused to marry and by whom he had several children, which she, several babies, I should say, uh, he forced her to give up and drop at the the nearest depository for unwanted children, um, while he celebrated that uh, women should all nurse their own babies and devote themselves utterly to motherhood. He was an incredible hypocrite. So he led his own life in a very individualistic manner in which he didn't even live up to the romantic ideals that he espoused for other people. There's a fascination with the person who stands out, who is, is different. And uh, Goethe's Faust, of course, is another character and we actually call people who want to remold the world into their own notions and who uh, refuse to accept the limits of social constraints and religion and morals and so on as Faustian. I think they would have been understood also in the 19th century as uh, Napoleonic. Uh, the Napoleon complex, right? And and this whole right. idea, the this a little offshoot of romanticism or a little aspect of romanticism, the Superman theory is, is such as oh, expressed yes. by Nietzsche, but the, but you, the Raskolnikov character in Crime and Punishment is certain that you mentioned is it's worth remembering that which you talked about, but I want to emphasize his idea that uh, his own morals, his own moral code was more important 
than anybody else's. So if he deemed this old woman to be expendable, then she was expendable. It didn't really matter what society might think about this or anything. He he was so wrapped up in his own thinking of how things go. And you see this expressed in movies like Rope, based on uh, the Leopold and Loeb characters. That's true history. That's true crime. But this idea is a really a perversion. Uh, it's the extreme perversion of this individualism. It's really the dark side. Well, and uh, you mentioned Nietzsche. Um, actually, we might link to my um, introduction to Nietzsche mm. online. Uh, I used to teach uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, also Sprach Zarathustra, in which he celebrated the idea of the evolution of what he called mm-hmm. the Übermensch, Overman, uh, that got translated as Superman. And of course, when a uh, comic book character emerged with that name, it sort of distorted the word for English speakers. So um, most uh, Nietzsche scholars today translate it as Overman. But it was an idea of uh, the, the true individual who becomes most fully human is the one who invents himself. And I'm using the male pronoun because he was rather sexist. He didn't really imagine female Übermensch and Überfrauen. He was um, uh, disdainful of traditional culture in, in all kinds of ways, especially in religion, but politics as well. And he winds up being very much against uh, the socialist idea of that there is a notion of being human that is about sharing and comradeship and mutual respect and support and so on. And uh, instead has this idea of the, the great defining of oneself and then not subjugating, but rising above the masses. And, of course, this is what gets picked up by Hitler. Uh, Unfortunately, his um, ideas became very distorted by his sister, who survived him and edited his work and became an advocate for him. And she's sort of a proto-fascist. And it's her version of Nietzscheism that gets to be the most popular. And it's oddly enough, what you get with Hitler is, of course, the ideal of individualism. But there winds up being just one individual, that's Hitler. And everybody else is supposed to merge themselves into a kind of group soul if they are true Aryans. And it's a, it's a really perverse idea of individualism. Can I make a connection here? Uh, because it's not just Hitler, and it's not just Napoleon. There are supporters, inevitably, for those figures. Are they thinking rationally, or can I make that counterpoint? I mean, we're talking about the dark side of romanticism. Are they thinking uh, rationally when they support, or are they thinking romantically when they support? I mean, does it matter if these... uh, everything they these leaders uh, these strong you know dictatorial leaders does it matter that what they are saying makes no sense no i don't <laughs> think so that's very tends to be very self-centered um and we've seen an outcropping of such leaders all around the world and in, in our own country recently there there is this uh it's a form of self-deception and and it, it may cling to a philosophy and and see the importance of individualism, not because they've worked out a thorough philosophy of it, but because it suits them to feel, I want to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you better get out of my way. Well, everybody wants to do what they want to do. And most of us don't see any problem with that. I just want to be free, right? I, I just want, just get your laws off my body or this kind of thinking. 
Um, everybody has that, don't they? Well, not everybody. I mean, think of in middle school where the last thing you want to be is an individual for most people. You want to find out what's yeah. cool and be like everybody else. You may want to be different from your parents, but you do not want to be different from your friends. Um, at least that's a very common phenomenon. It wasn't for me, I must say. Um, but you hear about that a lot. And there are other people who are just very anxious to fit other people's expectations. In fact, women were taught for many years to mold themselves, to not uh, create a, a self, but to become the self that the men that the man that would marry them would want them to be. And there's also a self-sacrificing attitude that says, I really want to help other people. I want to do what's what's good for them. Uh, Gandhi being an example of that kind of, of ideal. And of course, there are always masochists who think that they're just dreadful people and deserve to be punished and get their pleasure from being um treated as despicable and so on. That's another kind of individualism. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, though, in political terms, individualism really emerges simultaneously with industrialism. Now, what happens in the late 18th and early 19th century, starting in Germany and England, is the emergence of a new rising class, uh, what Marx called the bourgeoisie, um, people who own mines, particularly, and factories, uh, who do not have noble backgrounds, do not have titles, and have not been recognized by society traditionally as worth respect. But they accumulate so much money that they can begin to buy the respect that they long for, and even often to buy titles. And these people become very important. It's a substantial class of people in business and banking, uh, lawyers, merchants, uh, all kinds of people who view themselves as being better and higher than the peasants and ordinary working people and resentful of the privileges of the upper class. This is, leads directly to the French Revolution, which is not about poor people rising up against the aristocracy. It's about that middle class, the bourgeoisie, claiming their place in the sun. And these people like to believe that they have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know, I built this great empire and business. Um, I've got this prospering, uh, wealthy family, and we did it. Other people could do it if they just had the ability. Uh, we must be better people. We have uh, stronger wills. We have more brains. We have a deeper understanding of society and so on. So we begin to glamorize this notion of success being equated to uh, what used to be attributed to nobility and being an admirable ideal. This is uh, continues today. And of course, uh, Trump is the exemplar par excellence. Uh, he thinks he deserves to be the strongest leader of the, the free world, largely because he's built a, a large empire of business. And that he says, I know how to negotiate. You know, I make these business deals, most of which lately seem to have been uh, renting his name out to various enterprises um, so they can slap the Trump label on him without him having very little to do at all with either uh, setting them up or marketing them. Yeah, I, I joked right after his inauguration speech that he didn't say much about foreign policy and that maybe what he was going to do is franchise the name America and allow other countries to pay to call themselves America, too.
Yeah, right, right, right. I'm interested in that and that history that leads us up to this. And it's very clear to me that uh, individualism is a very strong characteristic of Trump and some other leaders around the world. But I, I want to go back to the supporters and how that ties in with romanticism and just get your take on that. Well, modern conservatives tend to romanticize individualism, but you look at it closely, it's the individualism of the bourgeoisie, of the not of ordinary working people, not of the poor, not of immigrants, but um, what we need to do for society Everybody benefits best when the richest people who own what Marx called the means of production uh, prosper the most, and then it all trickles down to everybody else. So this is really a romantic theory of economics, and uh, Ayn Rand takes it to an extreme, the individualist, uh, industrialist. Uh, you know, who is John Galt? Mm -hmm. We've, and Bush's administration was heavily influenced by Randism. And uh, it's it said that quite a few members of the current cabinet uh, are as well. And so they're asking the public to say, yes, go ahead and strive for the top. But uh, if we give you uh, handouts from the government, that's just going to hamper your success because you'll lose your individual initiative. But let's give some big tax breaks to the owners of factories and then um, they will prosper and that's going to be good for you. And a, and a remarkable number of displaced working people actually buy into that. You can hear them interviewed on NPR as they talk about, well, the factories were closed and and now maybe this can all be brought back. So that romantic ideal is having a of individualism is having a very powerful influence on our contemporary politics. And is it not just individualism, but it's also a romantic notion about just to circle back to this idea about what truth is. And there's some greater truth that your facts cannot shoot down. Isn't that part of the appeal of someone like Trump where, uh, well, it doesn't really matter that he does not tell the truth and it doesn't really matter that he's belligerent and boisterous and uh, misogynist and all of these things don't really matter because I'm supporting him because uh, there's a greater truth. And this in individualism ties into it in the sense of I'm going to get my uh, job back. I'm going to get my life back if I just follow his path. That's the greater truth. Uh, that's what. That's really what he's telling me. I don't really care about all these facts and all this other nonsense. Well, I disagree a bit with that. I mm -hmm. think that there's a lot of confusion in, in the discourse about this. But if when you hear people who are Trump supporters, they they deny that he's lying. They, they tend to say, I really like him because he tells it like it is. Mm. And uh, tell it like it is seems to translate sometimes like he bursts out with the same irrational statements that I feel like I'd like to make sometimes. He doesn't mm. censor himself. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a different notion of truth from 
what what you're putting forward. And um, I think they're not acknowledging that these are untruths. There's uh, there's a lot of talk about how people isolate themselves in their bubbles with discourse. And so they, they hear what they want to hear. And then it's always the other side that's lying. And Trump, of course, has been very successful in depicting the press, the establishment press, as the lying liars who uh, like uh, lying Hillary. He, he's redefined what truth and lies mean. And I think a lot of people have bought into that. So although for the New York Times, and maybe you and me, we look at that and say, Jesus, just one lie after another. There's a lot of people for whom that's not true. He's created his own concept of truth. And some people are willing to go along with it because they may be, they feel they may benefit from it. And they feel many of the same resentments that he feels. So their emotions are reshaping their notions of truth. So I don't think it's a, a, a reasoned out attitude in which logic plays a large part. I think it's, I'm angry, I'm poor, I'm resentful, I'm prejudiced, although they wouldn't mm-hmm. say that. I'm proud of being white, Christian, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and therefore, I'm embracing this as the true path. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think we're that far apart in that we're both talking about uh, there's an emotional appeal that that's there that's driving people uh, not a rational appeal right now one of the things that has happened in the great conflicts that have opened up in the early weeks of the trump presidency is the backlash from the national park service where you know there's some agitation in congress for national park lands or national uh, forests and so on to be sold off uh, to, to privates and that's always a popular sell in states like arizona and idaho and so on which is truly horrific but one of the things that's happened is that some of these national park service people have got, set up their own private blogs and that are not controlled by the government and are fighting back against him in a very interesting way, which is a, a good example of romanticism on the other side and also uh, individualism on the other side, not buying into somebody else's description. Um, but the notion of the national parks famously uh, started by Teddy Roosevelt, who was a great individualist, uh, who loved uh, the idea of going out alone in nature, usually and much to the horror of some of his uh, governmental colleagues who thought he was taking horrible risks to go off hiking in Yosemite, uh, for instance. But this is tied into the romantic conception of nature, which um, I talked about a bit before, this idea that someplace like Yosemite, where you have these bare rocks that go down and dizzying uh, cliffs or isolated waterfalls or great stretches of desert, uh, things that were thought of as ugly in the Middle Ages, as terrifying, as dangerous. The Romantic period permanently reassigns them to the world of the sublime. Now, we use the word sublime very loosely now. You're going to say, oh, I was a sublime creme caramel. And, uh, but the sublime to the Romantics was almost a religion. It was a new idea that it enlarged your soul to commune with nature. Uh, nature had meant for previous generations, you know, a nice walled-in garden with some roses and some apple trees and whatever, daisies in the grass, that kind of thing. You can see it in medieval tapestries. 
but the uh, the true sublime is is a got a bit of the terrifying with maybe lions roaring or roaming around or thunderstorms uh great storms at sea uh, the the love of that kind of thing is very much a romantic invention and what it does is ultimately make us care more about wilderness and that's not a bad thing and we we're in a, in a place now where human civilization and perhaps the survival of the species on earth depends partly on our appreciating those aspects of nature which are wild which are not serving humans in a in a very material way but which just feed the soul uh, we live practically next door to the Olympic Peninsula, which is interesting. It's a big uh, national park. And one minute from here, I can go down to the shoreline of Bainbridge Island and look up and across, see across the Kitsap Peninsula to the uh, Olympic Peninsula beyond with the mountain range now very much snow covered. And there are no roads through that park. It's around the edges. You can drive and uh, Highway 101 circles it which is really interesting um and you can go in a little bit in various places but the heart of it you have to put on your backpack and and take your sleeping bag and maybe a tent and do some serious hiking if you're going to really explore it but the idea of that wilderness is very very important to people around here even though it's not something that they can cozy up to in a, in a quick and easy way it's easier to explore many areas in the cascades on the other side of seattle to the east than it is the olympics uh and by the way the the name the olympics already exalts them they were called that after the idealization of uh, olympic fantasy of of ancient greece where the gods dwelt and the international olympics committee <laughs> tried to sue companies that used the name olympics in merchandise and so on associated with the park and it was pointed out in the courts that uh, the olympic mountains name came first before the modern olympic games <laughs> the fact that um Olympics, uh, the, this romanticizing of nature arose during the period of maximum industrialization is not a coincidence. People appreciated nature more as they saw it begin to vanish. And when people like Blake were lamenting over the dark satanic mills, coal mines and so on that were defacing the English countryside, that's when people really began to appreciate the countryside. And the more industrialized countries become, the more they tend to celebrate uh, the beauties of nature. If you think about the Japanese flocking in mobs out to watch the cherry blossoms bloom in the, in the most one of the most densely settled countries in the world. This had happened once before, by the way, back in, in uh, Hellenistic Greece after the classical age in alexandria in egypt which was a huge metropolis at the, for the time and of course the home of a great many scholars who whose works were found in the great library of alexandria which was one of the wonders of the world we get writings about pastoral life the idealization of the pastoral now before this time if you were a shepherd you were ignorant you were dirty you were probably dumb uh, you might be comic but a, a shepherd's life was not something you aspired to. It's not something you idealized. But all of a sudden, we begin to get these poems in Hellenistic Greece and then adopted into Rome 
about how beautiful it is to be a simple shepherd uh, courting with a young shepherdess or in Roman times, often with another shepherd, with the fluffy white sheep all around, a little tinkling of bells and the breezes blowing in the trees and the birds singing and so on. That ideal of the pastoral, which means shepherdess, uh, shepherds are pastors. So the pastor of a, a church flock is the shepherd of his flock. That pops up again from time to time in culture. It turns up during the Renaissance when you start to get paintings and ballets and operas and novels. Uh, Don Quixote was written as a reaction against the popularity of pastoral romances. Um, and then the romantic period, in the, in the, especially in the 19th century, revives that, this whole idea of the simple life in the countryside, getting back to nature. And there's certainly a very strong strain of that in American life, among environmentalists and sometimes among hunters, all kinds of people who feel that you're really most fully human when you're most close to the natural state. But it becomes urgent the more people feel themselves oppressed by industrialism, by overpopulation, by the urban life that they're trying to flee. Of course, the hippie back to the land movement of the, the 1960s and early 70s is a reflection of the same phenomenon. Now, is there something to say about our reactions to all of this? Well, there are all kinds of pushback that takes place against romanticism various times. The realists, um, uh, Emil Zola being the example that I studied in the most detail. There are the impressionists who try to tamp down some of the exotic aspects and exaggerations of romanticism. Um, Neoclassicism, particularly in music. But these tend to be fairly isolated to one or two types of art or literature. And like the Enlightenment, uh, these things keep going. Enlightenment, the Enlightenment rationalism and romanticism continue in modern European Western culture in a kind of dialogue, often sort of blending with each other, uh, sometimes clashing, and uh, they they never have gone entirely away. Many people talk about modern fiction. If you read the New York review of books, you're not going to find many romantic novels. Most of them will be about the awful things that happen to people, you know, terrible uh, family lives and, and childhoods and romances that go wrong and so on. But those aren't necessarily the best-selling books. The romantic books in which people fall in love and find their true love is still much more popular. There has been, in the 80s especially, an upsurge of interest in romanticism through the uh, celebration of Victorian tastes and clothing and so on. And even the steampunk phenomenon is a way of bringing romanticism back into a genre that science fiction that we tend to think of as being uh, very rationalistic in its orientation. But there is a very romantic element in science fiction as well. I've just been reading a reprint, very fine reprint volume of the early uh, Flash Gordon strips. It's, there's far more romanticism in it than there is science of any kind. So I think we can say of romanticism that it successfully helped to redefine what we think of as human. Now it can go in different directions, in the Hitler direction or in the John Muir direction. Um, and it, it has a, a million different kinds of influences. But anybody who thinks that romanticism is dead uh, just hasn't looked very deeply into 
our contemporary culture or politics right so yeah. I, I, yeah and i think what you've done here is you've really well we started back at the beginning of this series we started with the entry from the common errors in english usage book on romantic and talked about how the word is misunderstood but what you've really done here is you've fleshed that out in a big way um all of these elements that come into romanticism and its influence and the way it's really transformed all of society, really. Uh, it's a very messy uh, kind of concept in, in a lot of ways. Um, it doesn't fit as nice and tidily into uh, its various movements that are that are its subparts. Or things that preceded it, thinking of enlightenment having a certain certain characteristics that are fairly definable, and certain periods that are fairly definable. But romanticism doesn't really work that way, does it? It's it's no, it's much more wide ranging and fluid. It seems like. And even in its origins, you could see that. And when I used to teach Voltaire, his philosophical dictionary, and I would tell students, you know, I admire Voltaire a lot, and I think his writing is really important, but he only has a few ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have to do with rejecting superstition and religion for the most part, trying to get people to not be carried away by their emotions. He's against slavery, and he has, and he hates war, and a few other things, but, and freedom of speech. It's very, very important to him, freedom of the press. But that's about it. And they're pretty well defined. They're fairly consistent. Um, Rousseau, he's all over the place. He not only does not live up to his own ideals in, in a lot of different ways, but he's. we've talked about him in a number of different contexts. He starts off the admiration of nature, educational reform, romantic love, um, the way that novels are written, importance of sentimentality. He was extremely hostile to the theater. <laughs> it could be very prudish in a way that clashes with the way he lived his life and fiction that calls itself romantic. And of course, we talked about his individualism. So right in its origins, romanticism is this whole bundle of often contradictory and explosive and very powerful feelings and ideas that uh, sort of bowls over rationalism for a while. It's just got a lot of energy behind it. And it's, it's got so many tentacles reaching out in so many directions that you can't confine it and and just say dismiss it well let's leave it there and uh, leave it for the listeners to uh, flesh all of this out in their own lives and uh, here we've we've gone and we've shot straight through um, uh, the valentine's day holiday that we started off talking about Um, but it's such a large topic uh, i think people can always keep it in mind and it's an interesting lens through which to view the world around us if nothing else, I mean, if you could be informed by this. Well, this has been fun for me. Thanks a lot, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.